Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 3. I'm Rick, author of the just-released Jesus-Centered Daily Devotional, general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, author of the Jesus-Centered Life from a few years ago. Uh, There's a pattern. (laughs) The title of the podcast is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Uh, For those of you who are relatively new to the podcast, just a brief backstory about uh, 15-ish years ago, I was invited to speak at a large conference in the in the Midwest, a big mega church, and the organizers asked me to um, do some kind of pre-conference seminar with about 30 or 40 youth pastors on something maybe that I had never done any kind of training on before, and I had been fooling around with something for a while and just percolating on it. And I, I, and initially I, I had to give it a name. So I called it Jesus centered ministry. (laughs) And so I told them, how about if I do a, a a two or three hour thing on Jesus centered ministry, they said, sounds good to us. And so the very first time I took a group of people through this experiment in focusing everything you do in church ministry, and especially in this case, youth ministry, around the goal of a deepening attachment to Jesus, no matter what it was you were doing. So leaving behind the sort of conventional approach of teaching people, teaching young people, biblical principles and how to apply them to their life. Instead, what if everything was oriented around um, a growing intimacy with Jesus? And that's everything you did, everything you were doing in your ministry was, was designed to fuel that. So I experimented with these people and the atmosphere was just like electric. It was crackling at the end. And the reason why is that in the process of training people in something that I was only myself just learning, all of us, the whole room got a lot closer to Jesus and you could feel it in the room. There were tears and um, real emotion in people as the as our time together was ending. And there was a long line of people waiting to talk to me afterwards. And each one of them had something similar to say. It was something like, I don't think I ever knew Jesus before. And these are all professional ministry people who've been doing this for a long time. And I just would nod my head and agree with them and cry with them. (laughs) So I left that incredible electric experience and went into the rest of the conference. And uh, I just popped into as many workshops and and seminars and and general sessions as I could. I'm a hyper curious. And so this was like kid in a candy store for me. I had no more responsibilities for the whole conference and I could just go to whatever I wanted to. And But by the end of that day, I was sitting in the humongous like airport hangar-like uh, atrium of this mega church with thousands of people swirling around. And I just felt deeply, profoundly sad. And I couldn't understand why. Should have been a sort of an exhilarating day. I'd had this amazing experience at the start of the day. And then the rest of the day was popping into these uh, workshops led by really brilliant ministry leaders and speakers. And I should have been exhilarated, but I wasn't, I was deeply sad. And so I sat 
in this big overstuffed chair in the middle of the atrium, just alone, the way you can be alone in a large crowd sometimes. And I just asked Jesus very simply, like a child with tears streaming down my face, why am I so sad? What's going on in me? And it's one of those times where I just heard his voice so clearly. Jesus responded back, you're bored by everything but me now. And it was like the sun came out and the weight got lifted and something in my spirit just soared. And I knew that what he had just said was so true that even though I'd been hearing what I'd call the, you know, the really smart tips and techniques of the Christian life in these seminars and these general sessions, uh, none of it, none of it touched my passion. None of it touched my heart. And I was profoundly bored by it all. And what I thought was sadness was actually <laughs> sort of terminal board, boredom. And Jesus was trying to say, you'll never be um, engaged by or passionate about anything but my heart from this time going forward. And that's been true. It has pivoted my life. It's changed everything about what I do, um, you know, both professionally and personally. And out of that came a string of Jesus-centered things. <laughs> and here we are on a podcast called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Uh, once this sort of thing happens, this tipping point happens in your life where you realize my life is really about unwrapping and encountering the beauty of Jesus. And that's all that really um, captures me at the, my deepest level. Once that happens to you, uh, discipleship really isn't really work anymore. It's just creatively trying to figure out how to live that out. <laughs> uh, and it's, but it's not work like it was before. It just comes organically. It's when you're, you're deeply captured by someone, then it's not that much work to, to be with that person and to uh, be curious about that person and to talk to others about that person. It's just not that hard. So that was the tipping point for me. And that's where we, where we are now in season six of this podcast, episode three. So in this, uh, by, by the way, just to loop back for a second that I mentioned at the top that uh, the Jesus Center Daily is my new daily devotional is just out. Just a quick story about that too. Um, over the holidays and into the new year, um, a lot of people... <laughs> went and got that devotional, which is just thrilling for me that uh, so many are um, sort of sitting in the hot tub of Jesus right now, just just immersed in him um, through this daily devotional. So, so many went out and got it that uh, Amazon ran out of the copies they had, and they weren't planning for, to run out so quickly. And so they weren't prepared to reorder. And so on Amazon for a while, you couldn't get a copy of it unless you bought it from a kind of a what they call a third party seller and it was pretty expensive to buy and wasn't going to come for a month and yeah it was bad all of a sudden a daily devotional at the start of the new year when it's a great thing to start a new habit and unfortunately amazon had run out but good news starting this week amazon quickly reordered and now uh the price is cheaper and the shipping is free if you're a prime member and um, all the world is normal again. So if, if you had gone online to see it and you'd saw that kind of expensive price for it and had to wait a month or two to get it, uh, it's not true any longer. So 
So if you are waiting to get one, now's the time. Um, if you're if you are hoping to get one as a gift for a friend of yours at the start of the year, now's the time. Head on over there, and um, you can also ch check out a sampler of this daily devotional. I put a ten day sampler on the website I created for the book. It's called JesusCenterDaily.com. You can head over there and click on the button and get a sampler if you like. You can order right off that site, or you can just go to Amazon if you want. Um, and if you again, if you already have a copy and have been sitting in that hot tub with Jesus. <laughs> That's an image I've never used before. Um, please do head over to Amazon and, and just give it a quick review if you, if you wouldn't mind. It really does help to expose the, the book to other people. So there you have it. So today is the fifth episode in a series we started uh, last year. It's called Kingdom Come. So I want you to think here of one holiday tradition now, these are, these are not that far in your rear view mirror, so it shouldn't be too hard. Think of one holiday tradition that's embedded in your family culture that you think other families might not have. I mean, like a, a, a tradition that's sort of unique to your family. Does anything pop into your head that your family kind of does something that you don't hear about other families do during the holidays? In our case, in our family... We like to watch holiday movies um, every year. And of course, everyone likes to do that. And by the way, it's really hard to find a new holiday movie, isn't it? That stacks up to the old holiday movies. At least that's my, my experience. But in our family, we watch the holiday classic White Christmas every year. It is, in fact, one of my favorite movies. Just the storyline, the narrative, the, the music, the setting, the tone, the feeling that I have while I'm watching it. It's hard to compare. It is by far my favorite holiday movie. And so even though we know all of the lines of this movie and all of the words of the songs, and we can sing along with the songs and sometimes dance with them, we watch it every year. We watch White Christmas. It's one of my favorite nights all together as a family. We also, uh, every Christmas Eve, we make a special winter salad that's just delicious and we make one or two or three soups and we serve crackers and nice fine cheese and maybe a glass of wine or two. And we light all of the candles in our house. Now we normally as a family eat with a candle in the middle of our, middle of our dinner table every night. But on this night we light all of our candles and turn off all of the electric lights in our house and we just sit in candlelight it's beautiful. We linger, we talk. And then after we're all done and we clean up, we pile into our car, the girls in their pajamas, and we drive around and look at the lights for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, that's our tradition. And it has been since our kids were little. And, and if we stopped doing it now, they might mutiny. So, so the, that's a, those are maybe some traditions that are unique to my family. And that's important to think about whatever tradition is unique to your family when we re when we think about the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is the native culture of Jesus. It's the values and practices and convictions and beliefs of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These are the traditions, the cultural beliefs, the, 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 the flags in the ground that the Trinity stands for in, in the culture of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, now this is like whatever whatever unique tradition you just thought of and the unique traditions I just mentioned, 
the, the, these cultural traditions that Jesus came to plant in our world are like that. They were, they're, they're, they once were common, but then Adam and Eve betrayed God and the, the culture they lived in was no longer, it was now broken by betrayal and a culture grew up around sin and betrayal. And that's the culture we live in now, the culture of the world. And Jesus came to plant the seeds of his culture in our hearts and to help us learn how to live out that culture in the midst of our broken world. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It feels like adopting the unique or maybe even strange cultural practices of another family. And that other family is the Trinity. So today we're going to explore 70 times seven, 70 times seven comes from Matthew 18. Um, and again, that, that uh, if you grew up in the church, you know, 70 times seven has something to do with Jesus's teaching and modeling about forgiveness. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So I'm recording this on a Tuesday and the day before this day was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, our recognition and celebration of the life and mission of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, in that, in this day set apart, what we do is try to remember the courage and the message of Dr. King. He, he was leading civil rights movement during a time of tremendous division. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on and that had divided our country. And there was incredible racial tension at this time that um, he was facing. Um, and there was uh, just widespread disillusionment in the country, almost like the, the foundations that we had stood on for so long had been um, all of a sudden ripped out from underneath us and everything was disorienting and disillusioning. Huh, sounds a little bit like today, actually. So as much as we think this time is just unique to us in our history. It's really not, right? It's, it's happened over and over again. And Dr. King lived during a time that felt a lot like this time. And he and everyone involved in the civil rights movement had experienced a lot of pain and hurt and brutality from others over and over again. We know of many stories of violence and even murder, um, but even the subtle forms of brutality, the, the verbal forms of brutality, the things people said or wrote at this time were just brutal. And he lived in this time and he was a lightning rod for all this. Um, this kind of brutality was treated almost like normal. Hmm. Again, not much has changed, has it? It's important though to remember with Dr. King that he was much more and a catalytic civil rights leader, he was also a pastor, fundamentally, trying to plant seeds of the kingdom of God in what felt like a harsh and unforgiving soil, a, a, a soil that had been um, uh, kind of reduced to fallow ground relative to the kingdom of God in some ways. And, and it, it's funny because um, if you take that metaphor, the soil of our culture at the time, the farmer in charge of the farmers in charge of that soil um, at the time, you know, white America felt like the, the soil was pretty good, but what it was growing was, you know, not healthy plants. Um, so actually you can tell the health of the soil by the health of the fruit of that soil and the fruit wasn't very good. And Dr. King was trying to point that out. 
and um, got a lot of abuse back for for doing it, along with many of those who who uh, joined his effort. So I saw this quote in a slide presentation on our streaming church service this last week. Um, here's the quote from Dr. King, and it really stuck in me. And so I wanted to throw it out as an on-ramp here. He said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a permanent attitude. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a permanent attitude. Think about that for a second. And he's really saying forgiveness is a lifestyle. It's not uh, an act you haul out when you need it. It's something you live in every day. It's very challenging to think about that in terms of what he himself personally was experiencing over and over again in the culture. I mean, he, he was experiencing this pushback and brutality and pain and hurt on a daily basis. So for him, this was a this statement that he made was a was a present reality that he could could not conceive of forgiveness being something he did occasionally. It had to be a permanent attitude uh, that he lived out every day. You know, sometimes when we want to emphasize the badness of something, we call it unforgivable, right? That thing is so bad, it's unforgivable. But um, the, remember, it, the forgiveness that's being offered is being offered by the person who's been harmed. So what we're really saying is that that person who's been harmed is unable to forgive what has been done to them. So are there harms that we can experience that qualify as unforgivable? Are there some things that just, uh, they, they just go beyond the pale and it's just too difficult to think of forgiving them. And in that light, then what does it mean to have a permanent attitude of forgiveness? Wouldn't that open a person to abuse and mistreatment if that was, if that was the case? I mean, if we think about these unforgivable things that, that we attach that to combined with a permanent attitude of forgiveness, uh, doesn't that put this in, uh, put us in this hard place of victimhood where we're inviting victimhood over and over again. It seems like a tension that's hard to unravel. Well, let's explore that a little bit. So 11 months before his assassination, Martin Luther King spoke to NBC News reporter Sandra Vanocker from the pulpit of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And this is again, it's a little less than a year before MLK was assassinated. And, um, and it was about four years after his famous, I have a dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial in uh, August of 1963, it sort of catalyzed the civil rights movement uh, with one of the most soaring memorable speeches in American history. So this is about four years after that um, speech that kind of catalyzed a country around civil rights. And He's being interviewed by the, the veteran NBC reporter, Van Acker. Um, and it's, a, it's about a half an hour long interview and I will put a, a link to it on our podcast episode page. Again, that's painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and you'll be looking for season six, episode three. I'll put a link if you wanna uh, listen and watch the entire interview. Um, it's about 30 minutes long. It's an interesting interview because in it, 
um, Dr. King essentially says that that dream that he spoke in such soaring terms about in 1963 had now descended into a nightmare. It was a shocking statement at the time. Um, but essentially what he was saying is that that it, that early energy of the civil rights movement was a, was what he said was a little su superficial. Um, now he had experienced um, four years of this effort and he had become even more realistic about the task ahead. But he, he said the nightmare part of this um, in large part, that he didn't like to talk about this very much, but um, this was the truth in large part that nightmare version of his dream had come about because the people he assumed would be his natural allies in this effort had become really his worst enemies. And those people were other church leaders. So the very people who um, he thought would lock arms with him in planting the seeds of the kingdom of God, the dignity of all people, Jesus over and over and over again, gave dignity to people that the culture had no dignity for, had no respect for. And essentially what Dr. King was trying to do is plant seeds of that kind of culture. And of course, other church leaders would be the first people you would think who would lock arms with you. Other, others who honor and worship Jesus and want to follow him, why wouldn't they be the most passionate of allies? And, and yet what he had actually experienced is just terrible abuse and disrespect and opposition from other church leaders, other white church leaders. And this had been very disillusioning for him. It had, it had attacked the foundations of his hope. But he says in this interview, he had not lost hope, but this betrayal had really staggered him and um, he was trying to wrestle through it, but he had not lost hope. He was really in a place where he had to embrace his own quote. And that quote again is, is this, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a permanent attitude. So Dr. King was essentially saying, um, that isn't easy to live out. <laughs> uh, that, that that I spoke um, it isn't easy to live in everyday life. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to listen to Dr. King, a little portion of that interview, listen to him talk about the reasons he maintains his commitment to nonviolent protest. It's an interesting little segment of this, of, of this interview because nonviolent protest was, uh, King was passionate about this, but the cost of it is very high because you have to endure lots of hurt and pain and brutality to live this way. So wouldn't you just wither eventually under the onslaught of this response and be tempted to take things into your own hands, for instance? So that'd be interesting for us to listen to how Dr. King responded when Sander Van Ocker asked him about his commitment to nonviolence. And I want you to listen to this and consider how this is related to forgiveness as a permanent attitude. Let's listen. Was there, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do, the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence? It was the only device open to you, wasn't it? 
Well, I'll put it another way that uh, <clears throat> morally, I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then, and it is my feeling now, that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive, and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States, for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, it would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one tenth or one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning. And, uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was a morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country. All right, there you have it. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in 1967, explaining um, the complex reasons that he had stayed committed to nonviolence, but he wanted to emphasize, he was trying to answer Van Acker's question, but he was also emphasizing a basic thing, that there is something basic and moral um, about this attitude of nonviolence, which embedded within it, necessarily, you have to deal with forgiveness. Because if you're going to be committed to nonviolence and not responding um, to violence with violence, then you're going to be forced to live in a permanent place of forgiveness, right? This is really the rub. So let's compare now the cultural seeds that Dr. King is trying to plant in our hearts with this, with uh, the movement that he led, with the kingdom of God seeds that Jesus is trying to plant. Let's, let's see how the two overlap and maybe even differ. Um, so you've heard Dr. King. Now let's hear from, from Jesus. This is the parable of the unforgiving debtor from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. So let's listen. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven, which side note here, essentially saying infinity or a permanent lifestyle of forgiveness, permanent attitude of forgiveness is essentially what Jesus is saying there. Therefore, he's, he goes on, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. 
Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Well, his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, what? Jesus just said that? That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Wow. Again, wow. That uh, is an amazing story. So let's first pause for a second and think about what essentially is Jesus saying is true about the culture of the kingdom of God. He tells this parable as a way, as he often does, as a way to try to help people grasp and get their minds around this, you know, the, the strange practices, the unusual traditions that are true in the kingdom of God. He often does this by telling a story because people remember stories better than they do principles. So he tells the story that embedded in it has a truth about the culture of the kingdom of God. And it's preceded by him answering Peter's very practical question about, you know, well, how, how often do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? That by law, you're only required to do it three times in the Jewish law. But Jesus, but Peter throws out there, well, I'm going to be really a big man here and say seven times, more than twice what the law requires. Um, could I be as heroic as that, Jesus? And Jesus basically says, nope. I think it's more like infinity. I think it's more like a permanent attitude of forgiveness. Um, and that, of course, feels daunting. And then Jesus tells a story to put that dauntingness in perspective. And you'd have to say that, in, that what Jesus is trying to say about the kingdom of God is that God's heart is full of epic forgiveness, that in 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 the culture of the kingdom of God, a permanent attitude of forgiveness is like the air that, that the Trinity breathes. That forgiveness, um, not just small forgiveness, but enormous forgiveness is the lifestyle of the Trinity. So much so that people who don't deserve um, to be treated fairly at all are treated fairly. Um, and in this parable, uh, the, the master uh, in this situation had already pronounced judgment upon uh, one of his debtors who owed him millions of dollars. I mean, a, a really huge ticket. He'd already pronounced judgment on him and said, um, this guy's not going to repay, so he's going to have to pay with everything that he has, including his wife and children and everything he knows. He's going to have to pay off this debt with his whole life. And the man falls down before the master and just begs for mercy and, and begs for patience. And the master in this story 
Jesus says, is filled with pity, filled with empathy for this man. So he not only does not force him to sell everything and give up his entire life, he releases him from the debt altogether. And out of this incredible experience of grace, what what grows up in this man's heart is not gratitude and gratefulness and a sense of humility and freedom. Instead, the same patterns of greediness and exactingness hold on to him. And, and he has a, a man who owes him a little bit of money. And he's not satisfied by the guy's excuses or pleas for patience or mercy. He just says, I'm not going to be patient with you. Uh, I've waited long enough. I'm, I'm going to put you in prison. And he did. And when others saw that he had done this, they were so upset, they went to the king and told him what had happened. And the king calls back the man and says, you're evil. And why is he evil? Because he has not received, he has not taken the mercy he has received and passed it on to others in his life. It's not as though in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to work up our uh, lifestyle of forgiveness, to discipline ourselves, to forgive and forgive again, 70 times seven or infinity. Our discipline, our willpower, it can be great at times, but it is always fragile. And our willpower is never up to the task of following uh, most of the things that Jesus tells us we need to follow. And, and this is a good case in point. How can we really, through sheer willpower, forgive and forgive and forgive again uh, to infinity? How can we, through sheer discipline, as Dr. King was, was urging us to, how can we live in an attitude of forgiveness all the time? Well, Jesus here is suggesting that it doesn't come from discipline. It comes from gratitude. It comes from understanding what you and I have experienced mercy for. And if we devalue that mercy, if we take for granted that mercy, if we don't really even think we needed that much mercy in the first place, you know, oh yeah, my master forgave me my millions of dollars of debt, but he's so rich. Does that really matter to him that much? The sacrifice he just made to forgive my debt, is that really going to make a dent in all of his resources? Probably not. You know, when I think about it, um, I actually deserved my debt to be forgiven. I mean, he's not going to miss it. And I'm a good guy. And why, why shouldn't I get my debts forgiven in the way that this the king has done? Why shouldn't I? This is what is branded evil in this parable. The evilness is a blindness to the great gift the man has been given, to the sort of um, attitude of entitlement he has, that he deserves this grace instead of the humility that says, I could never deserve this grace. And what you've just given me is beyond belief. You know, at, at Christmas, um, my my daughters, uh, you know, they're one is a senior in high school, one's a senior in college. Um, 
they are quite creative in the Christmas gifts they give us, and they always have been. This year, they topped themselves. Uh, they gave us a series of presents, each of us. Each one, when we opened it up, had a little cutout puzzle piece in it, and it was a picture of something. And we were supposed to successively open our next presents and then eventually put the puzzle together and guess what it was they had given us. And by the time we got to the last puzzle piece and put them all together, we knew that it was a picture of the atrium of a very nice hotel in downtown Denver. And we looked at them and said, what does this mean? And my girls had pooled their money and had bought us a night's stay at this very nice hotel in downtown Denver, along with an evening of live jazz that they would have in their atrium. And this was the first night that their house jazz band was going to be playing after months of being away because the restrictions had loosened some and they had socially distanced tables in this large atrium. And so my kids were giving us a vacation um, in a beautiful spot in downtown Denver with uh, a night of live music, which uh, light night of live jazz music. And those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a long time know I absolutely love jazz, especially live jazz. And so they gave us this extraordinary, magical, extravagant night. And I remember just our, our mouths just hung open. We couldn't believe it. The, the, the gift that they'd given us was just beyond compare. It was, it was so extravagant. It was hard to receive. Um, it was hard to think of them having paid for this and how much it cost them in their world to pay for this. It, it just, it was hard to get our minds around. And it created a, a profound sense of gratefulness and humility in us. Um, and at that point, to receive this gift was to receive something we knew had been very, very costly for them and had come from a place of great love. And our, our best gift back to them would be to receive it in humility and to be grateful for it and to treat it as a precious, precious gift, which we did. We had a wonderful, wonderful uh, night stay and experience there in our little mini vacation. The first one we've had in more than a year. Uh, that's, the, that's called a COVID-19 vacation. It's a one-nighter. <laughs> so, uh, but it was a beautiful experience. But more than that, it was a beautiful um, act of kindness and generosity from our two kids. And, and that attitude of, we, I, we could have said, well, you know, the, the kids have enough money for this. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's really nice, but you know, I, I mean, they, they've saved enough money that this is not going to be a huge hit on their you know, we, we, we could have, I, I guess, in some kind of alternate universe, gone down that path where we devalued their gift. And that's essentially what's happening in this parable, isn't it? That, that this, uh, this man has devalued the gift of the king. He has taken the, heart, the, the king's heart for granted. He has besmirched and, and disrespected the cost of this gift to him. Um, and he has, uh, in turn, not passed along the mercy given to him, but instead hoarded it for himself and demanded of others what he had not been demanded of himself. And when Jesus says, 
the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. Whoa, that's bracing. Um, and essentially what Jesus is saying is that there's consequences for this kind of thing. There's consequences for living um, a life of disrespect and lack of gratefulness around the mercy you've been given. Because the mercy you've been given is way, way more costly than you're, than you're treating it right now. In fact, the mercy we've been given cost Jesus beautiful, wondrous, amazing Jesus went through a horrible, torturous death. He was the one tortured for us. He stepped in to take on the torture that we deserved. And uh, in stepping in for us, he gave us freedom from our captivity, from our great debt. The question is now, how do we respond to that great gift? And in turn, how do we respond to those around us as we, as we experience the impact of that great debt? Imagine Jesus and Dr. King sitting knee to knee and uh, having a discussion about forgiveness. What do you think they'd agree about? Is there anything that you think they might disagree about based on what we've read and heard here? What would they agree about? I think fundamentally they'd agree that forgiveness is a lifestyle. Forgiveness is a permanent attitude, as King said. And that the only way that that's possible is if you understand the great gift already given to you, that you can live in forgiveness when you live knowing you've been forgiven every day, every moment. Do we live knowing we've been forgiven? Are you self-aware enough to know um, the cost of your own forgiveness, the cost of your own debt being wiped out? Or have you grown to a point where you just take it for granted that, you know, you live a pretty good life now. And so the, the present need or the visceral understanding of the need for your forgiveness is over. Well, with both Jesus and Dr. King, I think they're both men who are uniquely and uh, viscerally aware of the, the price of forgiveness and the costliness of mercy. And out of that, they, they lived as conduits for that mercy. And that's really our calling, isn't it? That we could, both Jesus and Dr. King would agree that our lives are to be conduits for mercy and forgiveness. Yes, they would agree. That's true. Um, they, they would agree that it's not easy, that forgiveness is never easy especially if you're used to being tight about it, ungenerous about it, exacting about it. Uh, you would have to experience a great freedom from your own debt and then be determined to live, live a lifestyle of that with others around you in order to endure all of the times that you would have to offer forgiveness. Um, so, and I think maybe they would also agree that in a sense, what, what Dr. King was saying is that he's trying to plant a moral way forward for the civil rights movement, that in a sense, 
to do otherwise, to respond to violence with violence would be evil. But to respond to violence with forgiveness and nonviolence is, is planting the seeds of the kingdom of God. And that there's something solid and impenetrable about the kingdom of God that makes it able to leverage the hearts of people, which is what the civil rights movement did expressly because it was nonviolent. So would there be some areas of disagreement between Jesus and Dr. King? Is there something that, that uh, perhaps that they wouldn't agree about? Um, it's harder to say, isn't it? Um, the, the things that Dr. King fought for and his opposition to the Vietnam War, for instance, uh, would the two of them agree or disagree on the cost of war and raising up arms? And um, it, would the extension of forgiveness and mercy include never fighting any war uh, in the United States? Uh, would we never stand up uh, for abuse and bullying? It's hard to imagine what would have happened if we hadn't stood up in World War II or World War I, isn't it? Is Vietnam different than that? Um, perhaps. Perhaps they would agree about what happened in the Vietnam War. And perhaps they would disagree about ever responding to, to protect yourself or protect the world using violence. I'm not sure. The areas of disagreement are fuzzier to me. But I think what, what's really important to remember is that in this week of celebrating Martin Luther King's life and legacy, that at his core, um, this, this commitment to nonviolence and a commitment to living forgiveness as a lifestyle, that in his pastoral core, he was simply living out one aspect of the body of Christ in planting seeds of the kingdom of God in the fallow ground of American culture at that time. And that seed planting is linked to today's seed planting and even some harvest that's happening today. Uh, back then, uh, Dr. King said the biggest barrier to, to um, spreading the, the crop that he was trying to plant for the kingdom of God, the biggest barrier was that um, those in white America were, some were incensed by the response to, to the civil rights movement and the brutal, vicious responses that it generated and, and protested about the brutality of those responses. But Dr. King says, we're not fundamentally in agreement about a wholesale change in the way the culture valued diverse cultures, diverse races and diverse colors in the culture that that hadn't fundamentally changed. And it wouldn't until uh, a, a, a strong minority or even a majority of white people in America cared as much about uh, equality as the, those in the, in the black civil rights movement cared. That when that tipping point happened, there would be change in the culture. And I think we can see seeds of that even today in our culture, like never before, um, people in white America um, supporting through their words and actions and deeds, the fundamental belief that is embedded in our constitution and, and really comes 
from the culture of the kingdom of God that all men are created equal. Today, we start to see the fruit of the seeds planted so, so long ago, and we're still seed planters today. So that's where we are today. Um, Dr. King and Jesus, I think they would agree as they sat knee to knee. So what would it mean today for us to live out the values of the kingdom of God in our situation, in our time right now? Let's just close by uh, simply asking Jesus to give us one thing we could do right now to take a stand for forgiveness in our life. One thing we can do to take a stand for forgiveness in our life. I'm going to pause in silence just for a moment and let you listen to Jesus. Just listen like a child with your, it helps sometimes to put your hands open before you. Just ask him simply, Jesus, what's one thing I can do right now to take a stand for forgiveness in my life? I'll be quiet. All right, gang. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is season six, episode three of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode three. For links for what I've talked about today, just head on over there and click away. Again, uh, this uh, this is a podcast produced by rickwellens.com and you can subscribe to it on Google Play or iTunes to make sure you get every episode. And we'll see you again next week. 